Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Jessica French. Jessica is an award-winning composer specializing in choral music. Her works have been commissioned and performed by ensembles such as Seattle Pro Musica, Amber, Ember Choral Arts, Pacific Lutheran University Chorale, Opus 7 Vocal Ensemble, and just had her most recent piece, Awake O Sun, premiered two Sundays ago by the Ohio State Chorale. Jessica is also section leader at St. James Cathedral in Seattle and was named their composer in residence for their 2021 to 22 season. Jessica French, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm so happy to be here. Really fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, you live up the road for me. I'm in Lacey, Washington, near Olympia. You're just up the road in Seattle. But I know you didn't start in Seattle. So where are you from originally? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually from Salt Lake City, Utah, originally. Um, and my whole family is from there. Um, so I moved, I've moved around a lot, <laughs> but that's where I grew up originally. Um, my parents, I did have kind of a musical background, both from my parents on and their parents. So okay. it's kind of a mixture of things. Um, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> like what, um, what sort of musical background did they, did they provide you? Well, so my, um, on my mom's side, uh, my grandpa was an opera singer and he actually was in San Francisco for a long time. Okay. And then he met my grandma. He was in um, the Navy for a while. And then they moved to Salt Lake and um, he continued to take piano lessons for a while. And my grandma played the piano and did a lot of that too. My mom's a singer songwriter. So she does a lot of kind of folk slash alternative rock kind of styles, blues a little bit. And it's funny, my dad and my mom actually met in a in an 80s band oh really <laughs> so my dad it was called the crazy jane band so my dad and his brothers had this band and my mom auditioned in college to be the backup singer so i have a, you know, a big mixture of musical styles kind of in my family that's cool um, so were there a lot of 80s rock in your household yeah, growing up definitely uh you two um peter gabriel you know that kind of stuff and i still love that music i still listen to it a lot so very nice um, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, the mixture of things. And on my dad's side, his dad sang in the choir at the cathedral downtown in Salt Lake. So there's a different, you know, a different type of music, but that was also an influence there, too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I saw that you studied at the Madeline Choir School. So what sort of training did you receive there? Yeah, so that was a, a really great place. It was first, it was an after school program, kind of like a lot of course for programs you see around, you know, in different churches. So I think we had rehearsal maybe once or twice a week, and then we'd sing once a month. Um, but when I was going into seventh grade, they turned it into a full-time choir school, kind of modeled after a lot of those European choir schools in, mm -hmm. you know, like in England, like, you know, uh, Westminster Choir, Cathedral Choir, things like that. Um, so a lot of us were at different schools, and we left those schools to go to the choir school. And it was brand new. It was in the basement of the cathedral. So it was, you know, from the very it was I mean we had like small classes it was like 22 of us and uh -huh. you know it, it was just it was completely new um but it really you know 
changed the way I look at music and kind of formed my musicianship. And we sang music from, you know, Gregorian chant up to present day music at a very high level. And we started rehearsing daily, singing masses daily, you know, uh, Sunday masses, etc. So it was, you know, a big shift in my musical life. Yeah. Was that a was that an all girls school? I imagine it was actually co-ed, and it, I okay. think it's still one of the only co-ed choir schools, Catholic co-ed choir schools specifically um, in the country. Because um, I know there's a there's a boy there's a men and boys uh, choir school in Boston, I think, but it's you know still just for boys. So, yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. So one thing from your online bio that I didn't mention earlier is that your education and training is mostly in organ performance. Uh, bachelor degree from Indiana University, masters from Yale. So first of all, how did you get started on organ? Yeah. So um, the way I started was, well, it was while I was at the cathedral. Um, you know, I'd been playing the piano for about since I was around seven. And that was kind of a big focus of mine. Um, but I remember, you know, I was starting to get surrounded by organ music because we would sing all the time and be accompanied by it and hymns and service music and anthems and all that. But we would always be on the, you know, the far end of the cathedral, you know, behind the altar singing. And the organ is in a stereotypical place up in the loft, you know, across. Right. And I was always kind of enthralled by that big sound. And I was a very quiet kid. You know, I'm still a quiet person, <laughs> but like there's something inside me that like wanted to make that noise. I don't know why. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, I want to do that, you know? And I remember we were doing a recording session up there for a CD because we didn't really sing much in the loft, but that was one time we were. And during the break, we actually got to walk around and I got to see the organ console for the first time. Okay. And I got to see, oh, it has more than one keyboard. It's got four of them and it's got a pedal, the whole keyboard for your feet. And it's got all these buttons. And you know, like, I was just kind of overwhelmed, but also just like fascinated by it. Yeah. And, you know, just actually see what it looked like. And um, a friend of mine was taking organ lessons at the time with the organist there at the cathedral. And I was too shy to ask him to take lessons. So I asked <laughs> my friend to ask him, <laughs> which I appreciate. So anyway, then I started taking lessons and I just like took to it immediately. I was just, I was obsessed. And I started learning all the repertoire I could for the organ. Um, and to the point where, you know, I think it was like my second year of high school, the person I was studying with was like, you need to start looking at, you know, schools. I think you should go into organ performance. And I had never heard of like, what's organ performance, you know? Um, but he started explaining to me like what this degree would would be and what you'd be mm -hmm. doing. Um, and so that's kind of where it went. And I suddenly put my whole life into the organ. Like that was my plan, <laughs> my plan <laughs> of the organist. And, you know, get these degrees and then either be a director of music at a big cathedral and or concertize, do recitals. Um, but it changed. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Just, so I want to I talk about that change. So I know you still do write for organ. Uh, mm -hmm. You were commissioned to compose some works for the American Guild of Organists for their Seattle convention in 2022. But you call yourself mostly a choral composer now. So mm -hmm. why the change from organ to choral? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people always ask me that for good reason. Um, so long story short, I had this plan. I was, you know, I did my two degrees. Once I finished at Yale, I went to New York. I had a church job there. And then I went to another really pretty well-known church job. And for me, I was like, I finally, you know, hit that milestone where I'm like, I'm at that big name church job. I'm, you know, doing the thing. I'm an organist. And for various reasons, a lot of things just weren't working out. I was starting to get a lot of chronic pain when I played. And I was trying to do everything I could to figure out what was going on. And it just was getting worse and worse. And basically when I was at this job, like everything fell apart, my musical life, my personal life, like it was all just not working. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was kind of a, a time where it was, you know, for me, it was, it was new. Cause I felt like I had no control. I was like, what am I going to do here? You know? And 
the funny thing is my parents happened to move to Seattle around that time. Um, my dad got a job here and that was unexpected. Like they were planning to stay in Salt Lake City, you know, for the rest of their lives. Um, and when all this stuff kind of fell apart and I kind of had the realization that I just couldn't keep playing like this because I was just in pain a lot when I play and it just wasn't sustainable, basically. Mm -hmm. So I moved here, like not knowing anyone really and not knowing what to do. And so I kind of had, I was, I had the luxury of having some time to kind of figure things out. And I knew I wanted to keep singing. Like singing has always been a big part of me, a choral singer. Um, and lucky for me, Seattle has tons of choirs. And so I was easily able to find some connections and get a church job and start singing in some choirs here. But beyond that, I had to figure out, well, what else can I do if I can't play the organ regularly you now? <clears throat> And I always had this desire to compose, but I never really had the time to pursue it beyond like learning uh -huh. how improvisation and, you know, things that you do in church music stuff. But um, I finally decided just to start trying to write some choral anthems. So I just did it like on the side for fun. But then I, you know, thought, I think I want to take, take some lessons and figure out if I can do more with this. Um, and so I actually got uh, someone put me in touch with uh, John Mulison. Um, and I still study with him to this day. He's a phenomenal composer and mentor and friend. And he luckily was specifically writing choral music because that was my mm -hmm. big draw because that's my whole world, you know, church music and choral music, um, but also organ music eventually. But I was really focused on choral music because that still is like my biggest passion. Uh, and so <clears throat> I was able to get in touch with him and then I started lessons and it was a long, you know, it was a long process. I had a lot to learn. Um, but he really helped me find my compositional voice, I think, because I still didn't quite know what it was that I wanted to do with it. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how it morphed into that. It was completely not planned. I was not planning to be a composer <laughs> at all. I was planning to be an organist. Um, but now I look back and it's, um, I'm kind of glad it went the way it did because it, I feel like the organ was kind of one of those tools or stepping stones that brought me here to what I'm doing now. Um, and I miss playing it. I really still miss playing the organ a lot. I just can't do it on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask. I want to ask you about something that I know uh, people have asked you about before. So I saw online that you have uh, synesthesia. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that different people experience this in different ways from other people. Can you describe your ability and how it affects your compositional process? Yeah. So synesthesia is a kind of a cool phenomenon. It's basically a linking of senses in the brain. So people have it in various forms. Um, the one I, the few, I have it in a few forms, mainly it's, um, I associate colors with, with words, uh, with names, so like names have a color, days of the week, days of the week have a color, um, numbers have a color, but even more fun, I have it with sonorities, with, with notes. So each note, uh -huh. like, if I like map out for you a, a scale, each note has its own color. So when I hear an A, I see green. And so using those is kind of fun for composing because it's almost like you have this, you know, this palette of colors that you choose from and it gets overwhelming because there's a lot of different things that can change the colors, but sure. I use it to my advantage. And a lot of it is intuitive. I've just been doing this for years and not realizing that it was a thing. But now that I know it's a thing, <laughs> I try to use that um, in my comp composition. Um, and so it helps me make decisions on what key center I might choose or what sonority I might choose or what chord uh, based on the colors I see. Sure. So that's in a nutshell, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome because, you know, I, I feel different keys in different ways, but to actually see keys in different ways, I think is a really cool ability. 
Yeah, it's fun. And what I hope is like, I know people can't see, because I've talked to other synesthetes uh, that have it, and usually they have a different palette than everyone else has. Mm -hmm. But I know people can't see the specific colors that I'm seeing, but my hope is they'll feel the general shift anyway. Like, you know, um, almost like a kaleidoscope, you know, it's going into one area and then it shifts to something else. And when people sing my music, a lot of the times they'll, it's kind of daunting because it'll be in one key for like five measures. And then suddenly it shifts and has all these accidentals. And it looks like, oh my gosh, you know, but once they learn it, it makes sense. But that's usually why it's because it's shifting into a different color area. Uh-huh. So. Very cool. Yeah. So <laughs> in addition to composing, you also run the French press, which contrary to what some may believe by the name, it has nothing to do with coffee. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Though doing a Google search, I did find a coffee house called the French press. So if you want to go there for a cappuccino, they might have it for you. Uh, <laughs> so what is your French press? Yeah. So my French press is, it was funny. It was just a random idea I had a few years ago when I was first starting to, um, you know, try to put my music out there and learning about self-publishing. And I, I just, for fun on one of my score covers, you know, I had my, my piece title in the center and I had Jessica French on the top. And then I thought, I'll just put the French press. Why not? You know? And it, it was funny. Cause it was kind of like, I don't know when you have a new outfit or a new shirt and then you get a lot of compliments on it and you don't you weren't expecting it like I, I that's what I was getting with this I was getting random choir members coming up to me saying I love that name that's so clever you know <laughs> and I'm like I I know I guess I came up with it but it was just random you know so I thought okay maybe I'll I'll work on using this because it seems like it's catching on and people remember it and so um so I kind of you know I'm still like trying to perfect the way I'm doing my self-marketing and all that but uh, like I just finally got a new logo for it just a couple months ago when I went to ACDA um, when I did the composer fair. So it's just, it's fun to kind of have your own brand and work with that and see mm-hmm. where it takes you. So. Yeah. So what advantages or disadvantages do you see towards self-publishing? Yeah, I think the advantages are <clears throat> that for one, I get to kind of personalize it the way I like, you know, I, I have my own logo, my own colors, my own ideas for it. I also feel like I have a, a I can have more of a personal relationship with the singers or the conductors who want to program my music because when they order my piece, you know, I send they go to my in, they I send them an invoice and they do all the stuff, but I usually have to communicate with them and I like to kind of ask them, so where'd you hear about this piece or what were you looking for? And so I can kind of personalize it and, and have uh-huh. a relationship with them. I think the downside is there's more work involved. Like <laughs> I have a few pieces published traditionally and I really, I'm, I love the places where I haven't published They're great companies and they do all the work. Like they do all the marketing and they put it out there. I don't have to do a thing, but of course with my music, I have to do all of it. And right. you know, there's this, there's the imposter syndrome thing. Like sometimes I don't really like promoting myself. I don't like to be like, Hey, here's my stuff. But you know, I know I need to do it so people can hear about my new pieces. So, so it's kind of, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Sure. So here's a piece, here's a question I like to ask composers sometimes. Yeah. If you had sort of unlimited time, unlimited re- resources, could just write whatever you'd like and you'd have the money for it, what would be your dream composition? You know, I think I really want to write a multi-movement piece, maybe like a 20 to 30 minute piece with strings or, uh-huh. or and choir. I think it's just, I feel like that's in my future at some point. Um, you know, I've had the chance to write uh, smaller pieces for choir and strings. Um, and I loved it. It just opened up the whole new door for me. And I'm like, I want to do more of that. Um, I also really have enjoyed collaborating with some poets, some living poets like Tony Silvestri and Robert Bodie, who's an amazing conductor, but he's also a poet. <laughs> um, I kind of 
feel like I'd like to collaborate with someone and and maybe find a sacred text or maybe it's based on chant or something. I don't know. But like those are kind of the things that are bubbling in my brain. I would love to do uh-huh. something like that. Well, so. good. We'll look for it in the future. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you sit, do sit down to write a new piece, how long does it typically take you to write? Like from beginning to end? You know, it's interesting. It depends on the piece. I, I, I mean, these days, most of the pieces I write are like between three and five minutes long. I, if I can have like three months, it's great, but I know that's usually a luxury because I, especially I'm lucky I'm getting more commissions, so I have to write faster. Um, but I, because most of my pieces are self-published, I also have to do all the engraving and all the editing. So I try to leave myself plenty of wiggle room to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, when I get the piece, I really try to memorize the text and without playing it or singing or anything and just really, um, figure out what the text means and and because that's usually when the melodies kind of organically come to me um so that takes you know a week or so maybe I don't know it depends sometimes but sometimes I get inspiration right away and I'm like oh I gotta write this down so I'd say two months is probably nice if I can for a three to five minute piece but you know sometimes life is is crazy and (laughs) don't don't have that time (laughs) and I just (laughs) so so when you're when you're not musicking what do you like to do for fun do you have hobbies or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm working more than I should, but I, I have some hobby. I think I, I mean I'll, I'll put singing as a hobby as well. I mean, it's part of my work, but I still I sing in some choirs around Seattle just because it's just something I love to do, and I'm always going to keep doing. Um, I'm I'm starting to really like traveling now that I'm able to go mm. to places that I've never been before, and I like to bring my husband with me because we both like traveling, and so you know, just look going to new places that I never thought I would go or wouldn't have the chance to go to otherwise. Um, so, and, you know, I like hiking. I'm not an avid, like, you know, outdoorsy person, but I do love the Pacific Northwest and I love the climate. And so when I can, I try to find a new trail to, to explore. So yeah. those are you're, in, you're in a good place for the outdoors. I can tell you that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask you, Jessica, to play a quick game that this week we're calling, what's your favorite instrument? Cannons. <laughs> I'm going to ask you five true or false questions about Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. You're a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. Okay. <laughs> All right. True right, or false? Tchaikovsky conducted the inaugural concert at the Berlin Opera House. Mm. Gosh, I feel like I should know this. Um, I'm going to say false. <laughs> that is false. He actually conducted the inaugural concert at Carnegie Hall, May 5th, 1891. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right. Number two, despite the fame of being a world-class composer and conductor, Tchaikovsky suffered from stage fright. I'm going to say true. That is true. After the <laughs> Carnegie Hall performance, he swore off conducting because it was too strenuous for his nerves. Oh, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't All right. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, true or false. He felt that the 1812 overture was too loud. Hmm. I'm going to say false. It's actually true. He despised oh. the sound of the cannons and how it made the piece sound. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> like, way to go, Peter. Come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Number four, true or false. When he was four years old, he collaborated on writing a song with his younger sister, Alexandra. Hmm. I'll say true. That is true. And he began piano lessons the next year. So oh, cool. he, he started composing first. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very cool. All right. And number five. True or false? In his final years, Tchaikovsky began to walk his large estate and collect unusual pebbles. I'll say true. 
That one's actually false. He would walk his property foraging and collecting mushrooms. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I guess it had a well, bunch on his property. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, thank you for playing the game. You did a wonderful job. And again, like I said, you're a winner just for playing. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. All right. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Jessica's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Jessica French. We are going to start today with Tantum Ergo for SATB in Oregon. Uh, this piece was premiered in August 2021 as choirs are beginning their journey out of pandemic protocols. This piece also has a good example of your Oregon writing. So tell us more about this piece and uh, what it means to you writing at such a pivotal moment in history. Yeah, so this, what I love about this piece is there was a lot of unexpected things that happened. I um, This was one piece that was not a commission and yeah, it was during the pandemic when, you know, choirs were timid, you know, starting to come out and sing again, but it was still kind of, you know, things were closing and then they were open and closing, you know, so it was kind of this thing where it was unsure. And I had some time on my hands and I was like, I really want to write something that I just want to write, you know, mm. just, and, and also when I saw people, especially on social media, there were, you know, like church musicians and conductors saying, any, I need pieces that are, you know, for smaller groups, you know, where we have, where our, our singers are still socially distanced or we're wearing that, you know, things like that. And yeah. I need something that we can put together quickly. And this Tantumergo, I actually <clears throat> remember in high school when I took an AP music class, I had kind of composed that, the melody to it for that class. And I still had it in my head and I never really did anything with it. And I remember for years in the back of my mind thinking, one day I want to kind of resurrect that and see what happens with it. So I did. <laughs> and <laughs> And I really did not expect, it's really funny because I, it was, you know, I've had commissions, I've had choirs promote my music and I've been used to that. But like when I put it out there on Facebook, because I, I kind of wrote and said, hey, choir directors, I've got this new piece. It's a short anthem. You can learn it quickly. Um, it felt weird putting myself out there because it, it was like this time I'm the one that's saying, hey, I've got this new thing, you know, so I, you know, I forced myself to finish it and that took a while. Um and so it was an experiment. And what's so funny, it's become my highest selling piece. Like, for oh, some, wow. And I think it's partially because, yeah, choirs were starting to sing it as they were coming out of the pandemic. In fact, my friend, David Sinan, he's the director of music at a, a Episcopal church in St. Louis. And he said, can we be the ones to premiere it? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> they actually were the ones that premiered it. And there's a video of them singing it at their service. And that really is what put it on the map. Um, and the choir just really enjoyed singing the piece. Um and I made a version for treble choir as well. And so like actually the choir school, they were singing it as well. And then suddenly um, a lot of groups that at like choir camps and, you know, summer festivals, a lot of youth choirs were singing it. And so a lot of kids were getting exposed to this piece and they really enjoyed it. And so, I don't know, it was just meaningful for me to see all these choirs, different churches that I had never, people I hadn't talked to before, new places. And it just kind of, it actually kind of got the ball rolling for my music to be out there really. Um, especially in the church music world. And and it was completely unexpected. I just thought it was just going to be a fun little anthem that a few people would do every once in a while. So, yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. All right, we are now going to listen to Tantum Ergo performed by the Cathedral Choir of St. John the Baptist in Savannah, Georgia uh, with Paul Thornock, conductor.
right. Our second piece today, Strengthen for Service for SATB and String Quintet, as you mentioned, one of your pieces for strings. So I understand you wrote this for an anniversary of the Madeline Choir School where you studied in your youth. Uh, tell us what it meant to receive the commission and what this piece is about. Yeah, it was extremely meaningful. I mean, this was for their, yeah, their 25th anniversary. And I was, you know, honored to be asked to write for such a thing, you know, such an occasion. Um, so Greg Glenn, the founder of the choir school, he sent me this text. And the good thing was when I read it, it was a text that I had already sung. We had sung it, you know, at the choir school by a different composer. And so it was nice that it was already familiar to me. So there was already some nostalgia there and kind of memories of the choir school I mean they were there already but to have a text that I had also sung there it kind of things yeah. felt like they were coming around full circle and um but what I had to do is make sure that um the setting that I had in my head I had to really try and push that away because I always have this fear that I'm going to channel <laughs> a piece by another composer in my music and not realize it you know so I really tried my best to do my own you know make my own setting of it um <clears throat> and i think the text is just a really beautiful text i mean it's you know it's mainly about service i think especially in it with within within the church like what church musicians can do to bring the service to god um and i think it's just a beautiful text about renewal and strength of course um and so i really tried to bring out those aspects and it talks a lot about light as well so i really tried to hopefully bring those out you might hear essences of that in the piece um and it's neat how it's progressed because now i've been asked to write various versions of it for other types of ensembles and was not expecting it to go in that direction but it's kind of fun to see how things morph you know morph and change so yeah so how did you go about making sure that you didn't sort of copy your, your the setting that was in your head like what did you do to separate yourself yeah. So I, well, first I, I did my process that I tried to do each time as I, you know, I really sat with the text, even though it was familiar to me, I made sure to memorize it and speak it to myself. Um, and, you know, I, I, I knew that that's, it's actually a Richard Prue setting. That's the one I remember. And I, you know, I knew it in my head, but I, I just really, I, especially when the piece was done, I made sure to go back and listen, <laughs> make sure there was nothing that was similar to his piece. But honestly, honestly, once I really spend time with the text and do the process, it usually comes to me naturally. And it was funny. I was actually, I get these ideas, you know, and I don't know where they come from. They're inspiration, I guess. Um, and the, the opening motive of the piece, you'll hear this kind of opening ostinato, um, kind of quintal chordal almost. Um, it came to me as I was about to fall asleep. It was very inconvenient because I really just want to go. <laughs> and that's usually when these ideas come. And it's probably because I'm very relaxed. But I, it was only a few days after I received the text and um, I had to, get, I got up and I, my favorite app on the iPhone is the voice memos app because I can uh, just, I went downstairs and I played it on the piano and I sang it and I put it in there and I do that a lot. And a lot of times these ideas are, are nothing. They don't mean anything and they're not, you know, but I'm glad I captured that one because that's kind of the essence of the piece. You'll hear that ostinato come through uh -huh. times in the piece. So that's kind of where it began. And then it just, like any piece I write, it usually just, I don't know where it's going. I just kind of follow the direction it goes. And then, and then there it is. <laughs> so Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we are now going to listen to Strengthen for Service.
All right, our third piece today, Earth, Strike Up Your Music for SATB and Orchestra. So this is a beautiful Christmas anthem, and I believe you wore, won an award for this one, yes? I did. So this was the um, uh, the E.C. Shermer Choral Publishing Award that the AGO does every two years um, for their national convention. And as part of the award, you get the, you get the premiere, you get to have it premiered at the convention. Oh, that's uh, very cool. It was really cool. And it was neat because the um, the text is a Christina Rossetti Christmas text. Yeah. And Joseph Adam, who's the director of music at St. James, and he's the one, they're the people that actually premiered it. Um, he actually sent me this ad in the Organist magazine and said, you should, you know, you should apply for this, this competition. And it was funny because I had just finished setting another Christina Rossetti Christmas text, uh, Love mm. Came Down Christmas. So I thought this is too much of a coincidence. Okay, I should try. We'll see what happens. Um, and it was great timing because it was during the pandemic and everything was, you know, not great. And to get a, you know, a, I got a random call. I thought it was spam, but it turns out it was, you know, the AGO <laughs> New York and said, hey, you won this competition. Um, so it, it was great because I like the way this competition was was structured, because instead of you writing this obscure piece and then seeing if you win, it's, you know, send us a, co a concept of how you would, you know, set this text and what you would do with it. And. So I had, so it gave me a project to work on. It gave me something to do during the pandemic. You know, when I'm, we're all home every day and going crazy, like it was something to work toward. And the hope was in two years, choirs will be able to sing again. And so it kind of really gave me that hope, you know, um, almost like the, the hope of Advent, like the waiting, it kind of felt like it was fitting to write this, to write music to this particular text during that time. All right. Well, we are now going to listen to Earth Strike Up Your Music. Uh, here performed by the orchestra and cantorai at St. Olaf College with James Bob Conductor.
All right, our last piece today, O Star of Strength for SSA and Piano. So this is a setting of a text by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that, as you say on your website, explores the journey to one's inner strength and resilience. So how does this piece accomplish that purpose? <laughs> yeah, so I, the way this came about was I wrote this for Seattle Girl Choir was celebrating their 40th anniversary and they wanted, you know, a new piece for that. And Jake Winkler, uh, who was the artistic director there at the time, said he wants the girls to kind of to to pick the text. We, we want us because usually it's a conductor has a text in mind or you have a donor that has a text or the composer chooses the text. But he was he wanted the girls to be part of that process. And I thought that was a really neat way of exploring that. So he had me come in one day and we all kind of brainstormed and we were talking about themes, like what kind of theme do they want for the for their piece and a lot of them wanted something to do with space of all things they just like mm. whether it's the planets or the stars or traveling to space that was that was the consensus so after we talked about that uh, we came across a few texts and then everyone had to vote on like their favorites you know and this one was one of the favorites and it was definitely my number one favorite and it uh, the poem is actually called um a light of stars and so it's really you know it's actually about Mars specifically. Uh, and that's what the star of strength is, is referencing. Okay. Um, but whenever I look at a poem, I try to look at the underlying meaning behind it, you know, beyond just this text painting of Mars in this, you know, dark sky um, beyond this. I think he says the, uh, in the cold light of stars, it's very, I, I love the poem. It's very vivid, but he talks about, Oh, star of strength. I see thee rise and smile upon my pain. And when I read that line, I thought, this is the crux of the poem, and I need to call it O Star of Strength. And so that's why it's called that. And, okay. and the last part, it says, O be thou beckonest with thy mailed hand, and I am strong again. And when they finish the piece, they're singing, I am strong. They end on the word strong. And so I think for them, it was very empowering because, number one, they were just coming back, you know, singing as a group that first year because everything was on zoom before and it was in and out back and forth you know and a lot of them this would be their final concert as a chorister there before they would graduate and go on to wherever they're going so I think it had a lot of meaning to them in that sense as well as just you know a beautiful poem that was depicting Mars but I think that's that was the main reason so yeah I love that ending I am strong I am strong yeah <laughs> I think that's great Okay, well, we are going to listen to O Star of Strength performed here by the Seattle Girls Choir with Jacob Winkler, conductor.
Well, Jessica, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Yeah, so I am currently working on a piece for um, a girl chorister course that's happening in New York City this summer. Um, so speaking of choir schools, <laughs> there is a choir school at um, St. Thomas Fifth Ave um, in New York okay. City, Thomas Men and Boys Choir School. Um, so every summer they have a girl chorister course. I think it's been around for maybe 10 years now. Um, so that that summer girls from all over the country can come over and sing even song every day and have the life of a chorister, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so this year they asked me to be their composer in residence. And so they're going to be singing a, f- a few of my pieces. Um, and, but they also are um, <clears throat> commissioning me to write a piece for this, for this course. Um, and so it's, um, it's going to be called at heaven's proclamation. Um, it's a text about the transfiguration and mm-hmm. uh, it's just, a, it's actually um, the poet is, her name is Mechtild of Magdeburg. Uh, I think she's a 12th century mystic. So it's just a really neat, it's a really that, neat. Text. That is quite the name. It is quite the name, isn't it? I was like, I hope I pronounced that correctly. I think, I... <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, so that's what I'm working on now, and um, I'm looking forward to that premiere. So awesome! So, if my listeners do want to learn more about you and the French press, where can they find you online? Yeah, so you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, um, and then my website's just JessicaFrench.net. So you can just okay. find more. So fantastic! And hey, listeners out there, are you enjoying today's episode? Do you enjoy hearing these interviews each and every week? Become a subscribing member for less than a dollar a month. Your support helps me keep the music moving. If you're wanting to support the show but not sure you want a monthly commitment, you can Venmo me a dollar or so to show appreciation for what you hear on these podcasts. Visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough for more information. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks so much, Steve. It was so much fun. My guest today was composer Jessica French. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Sorry, no.